opioid use disorder, substance use disorder in general, has been long stigmatized. We know that the stigma uh, for people who use drugs, even for people who treat people who use drugs, mm -hmm. um, has long been prevalent in our society. But as we're seeing that the opioid crisis is touching so many people in so many different spaces, we know that people are now starting to speak up as they've never had before. This is Prognosis Ohio, I'm Dan Skinner, and that was Beth Connolly, one of today's guests from the Pew Charitable Trusts. On this episode, our 94th, we're addressing an issue that we've talked about a lot on this show, the opioid addiction crisis here in Ohio. Specifically, we're gonna be talking with the good folks at Pew Charitable Trusts about the settlement money that's forthcoming into our state. There's a lot of debate about whether the settlement is fair or the money is enough, and in my view, it wasn't and it's not, despite our Attorney General's assertion that it was the best deal possible. But the fact is that a sizable amount of money is about to come into our state. Having learned lessons in the past, especially from the tobacco settlements of the late 90s, how do we make sure that this money, when it does come, actually gets into the hands of people who will ensure that it's used to help those in need while building real capacity in the state to prevent future crises? My guests are Beth Connolly, Director of Pew's Substance Prevention and Treatment Initiative, and Mark Robbins, Senior Officer with Pew's State Fiscal Health Project. You can read more about Pew's work, but also about our guests, by checking out our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. While you're at prognosisohio.com, check out the more than 90 past episodes we've posted there, and read up on what we're doing with the show. If you can, please consider supporting the show for just $3 a month by becoming a Patreon. We'd really appreciate it so we can continue to grow the show and bring you conversations like the one that you're about to hear. Thanks so much, Beth and Mark, for being on the show and uh, talking about these opioid settlements with us. Yes, yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate the opportunity. So before we jump in, uh, you know, speaking about opportunities, I just I want to say because I would be remiss if I didn't say for those listeners who may not know much about Pew that as a medical educator and, and as a political scientist and policy person, I am constantly citing your work, uh, using your data, your charts, your reports. It's it's all been invaluable. So I, I come to today humble and and really appreciative for all the work that not only that you both do but that Pew does as well. Thank you very much. It's it's really important for us to make sure that we are educating the public, um, especially on these very important public policy issues and really getting the evidence out there for everyone to use. And also you make these fancy charts that just can be popped right into a PowerPoint presentation. I, 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 I know a lot of educators who would just um, not know what to do without organizations like Pew or Kaiser Family Foundation. You know, they make all these health-oriented charts and tracking polls and things like that. Can you give listeners a snapshot of where things stand nationally? And I know this is a big question. Like this could this could take up the whole the whole time together we have today. But you know, wh where are we with these opioid settlements and the kind of timeline? And in terms of you know, I mean, are, are we at the halfway mark? Or are we at the beginning? Is it just uneven and sort of unpredictable? Yeah. So I think. Um it kind of depends on which settlement you're kind of looking at. So there's there's several settlements going on. So I think it's helpful to realize that like over the last several years, state and local governments have filed thousands of lawsuits against um, pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, for their role in the opioid crisis. So, you know, it includes, you know, suits against manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies. And those have kind of been aggregated in different ways. So in some cases, there have been individual settlements with individual you know, states or even like counties, but 
a lot of the settlements that are being agreed to are sort of aggregations of those. And they're, they're going on at different levels of aggregation, I guess, you know, the, the companies would like to settle at with as many states or localities at once as possible. What we've seen so far is there's a, a few of the major ones that have been settled are um, from Johnson and Johnson, and then also um, some distributors uh, that, which are maybe companies somewhat less well-known nationally, but uh, Cardinal Health, McKesson, and Amerisource Bergen, and then uh, Purdue Pharma is a manufacturer that um, a lot of people have heard of. So those have all, uh, settlements have been announced for all of those. And if you kind of add those up, um, you get to a number that's roughly $30 billion currently. You know, that number can change depending on how many states ultimately agree to those settlements and how many local governments agree. But that's kind of the order of magnitude uh, that we're looking at at the moment. My understanding is that the companies themselves, you know, they really wanted to simplify this as much as possible, even though I'm saying like, I wish it was simpler so I could understand it. But it seems like they wanted to kind of pool as many of these challenges as possible to simplify, but also there might be financial advantages to them if, if they were able to accomplish that. And then it's my understanding that some entities just kind of opted out or wanted to take a different approach and kind of made it a little bit more fragmented. Yeah, that's that's probably a reasonable interpretation. I mean, I think from me, from the perspective of a defendant, you you settle to try to settle as many of the cases at once. So you can see in some of the settlements that there are provisions that say that where like even even this $30 billion, if, if not enough states were to agree to that or not enough local governments within states were to agree to that, that settlement offer could be pulled off the table. So where are we then in terms of unresolved and resolved? You know, here in Ohio, we had um, some news that there's a new settlement. Um, my understanding is that it's on the distributor side, not on the manufacturer side. But it's this is not the end of the line for this, right? This is a kind of um, one step. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, I mentioned the, some of the big ones that have been settled so far, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson, some, some of the distributors, and then Purdue Pharma, which was complicated because it was a bankruptcy. Um, things that are still ongoing or, you know, TBD are uh, pharmacies. That's one of the big ones. So there's actually a trial that started just this week uh, uh, with two Ohio counties uh, involving uh, some pharmacy uh, companies. So so that's uh, definitely one of the big things that's still down the pike. I'd like to turn to Beth and, and ask you, you know, if this is a little bit of a, a I guess, a bigger picture kind of view on this, because we jumped right into the, just the thicket of all these legal settlements and, and how complicated it all is. But can you give me a sense of like what, what kind of consensus out there is there among those who follow these settlements? Um, and, and it's a little bit of a, I guess, a, a philosophy question in a sense, but do you get a sense that there's, that people think that justice is being served, that we're on the path towards a kind of rectification of that? And what does it mean you know, for justice to be served in this case? What are we actually looking for in terms of like the on the ground effect of these settlements and where these monies will ultimately go? Thank you very much. The philosophy that underlines a lot of this is that people who are involved, no matter in which way that they're involved as either a patient, a family, as from the healthcare professional side, they are looking to these settlements as an opportunity to really invest in the treatment of people with opioid use disorder and invest in the ravages that have happened 
through uh, overprescribing, through, you know, the cost that opioid use disorder has really waged on many states and localities. So there is consensus about making sure that these funds are reinvested into treatment, into actually serving the people who um, were impacted by opioid use disorder and um, the results of overprescribing but also to look more holistically um, at the system to make sure that we're investing in prevention so this doesn't happen again, in recovery services so that people can still maintain their recovery throughout. And so these, all these three, treatment, recovery, prevention, these are all really important um, to the opioid crisis and using these dollars in the most evidence-based manner to make sure that we can help to ameliorate the overdose deaths that we're seeing right now. So these monies, it's it's expected, really are going to go towards uh, creating new capacity and system change within within these municipalities. Is there any kind of part that's, you know, I mentioned different kinds of justice, right, that are out there. I mean, is there any kind of pain and suffering, kind of, I guess, what Aristotle would call rectificatory justice, like making making good on on a bad situation aside from building capacity? Is, is, is that part of this framework at all? Or is this really just about getting money into states, into counties, into cities to make sure that we put the right pieces in place? States and counties and cities will be using these dollars to really address what's happening in their own jurisdictions. Yeah. And, you know, every, every state, Ohio, New Jersey, um, California, all experience the crisis in different ways, impacting different communities in different ways, uh, whether they be urban or rural, um, communities of color. We're hoping that the states and the localities will really assess what are the needs that are not being met in their communities and that the, um, the overdose crisis has really exacerbated and how can they use these funds to address those needs. So a careful assessment and accounting of what needs to be done really has to be made as these dollars begin to uh, flow into states. So let's talk logistics a little bit. And my understanding is that this is a lot of the nuts and bolts work that Pew is involved in as well around these settlements. You know, I guess one of the the big uh, big questions here is like about about the thinking about how states should handle these funds, assuming that we're talking about money that's coming into states. Um, you know, I guess a few questions I'll throw into the mix, and you can take you know p- pick and choose the ones you want in here. But you know, are these dramatically different situations from state to state? You know, would be one of my questions, and I, and I guess that question, at least as I'm seeing a fan out, fan out is, is is whether funds should go to local governments or states or counties. Like, what's the correct administrative unit that we would ultimately like to see running this? And I don't know, and I guess I'm asking you from your work with Pew, I mean, does your research, does your work suggest that there is a kind of maximal way to do this with the understanding that, as we know, every state is different in this country and, and, and some states are more more predictable and less predictable than others? If we start from the top, which would be that funds need to, number one, address the opioid crisis and the substance use crisis in uh, in each state and jurisdiction. And we know that when we look at the overdose death rates, while they include all substances, that the majority of overdose deaths do involve opioids. 
And then we talk about what is the best way to address this. And we need to really examine and utilize and fund evidence-based programming. Um, evident, there's evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. There are three medications that are FDA approved, unlike any other substance use disorder. And there are actual medications that can be used to treat, and they have a very rich evidence-based. So we want to make sure that states are looking at what the needs are of their communities, that there is evidence base that, that is guiding how they're going to use them. And then there really needs to be coordination. So as Mark mentioned, there are some counties that have sued in addition to their states. And what you want to ensure happens is that there is some coordination between the state and the localities to make sure that everyone is, again, looking to evidence-based programming, that we are also making sure that we're not being duplicative in a way that would use up funds in a way that would not, uh, that wouldn't leave room for other things. So are we duplicating services that could be paid for in one way um, and then thereby freeing up funding that could be addressing something else that's also a gap? Um, the coordination is going to be really important uh, among the localities and the state. So uh, we want to make sure that that is something that all the states and localities are really aiming for. It's, in, it's incredibly important. And of course, you know, whenever you have a large sum of money like this coming into the state, there's going to be concerns. I, I want to know a little bit about how do you ensure equity in this? Then I mean, like, what are some guardrails you can put in place to ensure that this money gets where where we need it to go. And I also just want to mention, I mean, it, this is all very well and good, but there's so much that is unfortunately political here. I mean, Beth, many of the things that you mentioned are sort of suggested, like harm reduction in general, this idea of really following the, the evidence base may say one thing, but that doesn't mean that something like medication-assisted treatment is not controversial in certain counties or localities. So I guess I'm, I'm looking for the administrative approach here to say, how do we push past all of that and say, look, this is about solving problems, not um, you know appeasing people who don't want to actually acknowledge science. Yeah, that's an excellent question, Dan. And, and I'll, I'll answer that from my perspective. You know, I work on Pew's state fiscal health team. So we have a take a budget perspective to this and Beth may be able to answer from sort of uh, her perspective on opioid use disorder and substance use disorders. Um, so I talked already about sort of, we're, we're looking at maybe $30 billion, maybe uh, maybe more than that when it's all said and done. Um, that's obviously a good chunk of money. And, and Pew believes that, you know, if that money is managed effectively, it, it can help states make progress on fighting uh, opioid use disorder. Um, but as you kind of alluded to, you know, that's not gonna happen automatically. There needs to be um, a, a well-considered strategy and kind of a plan in place ahead of time to ensure that that succeeds. And from Pew's perspective, there's basically a couple things, like a couple pillars, you could say, that that I think would really go a long way to help that. So one is to for policymakers to basically commit up front to, to an action plan and a budget for how to address uh, opioid use disorder in their state. So this should be like a long-term plan and a long-term budget because it's a long-term strategy or it's, it's a long-term problem that requires a long-term strategy to solve. And then you also want to make sure that the money is is adding to and not replacing what the state is currently doing, right? Because we want to make additional progress on, on fighting the epidemic. 
so that's the first pillar sort of is like having an action plan that everyone's kind of committed to up front. And then the second pillar would be like a, an ongoing transparency and accountability process where you actually report and measure, you know, what are we spending? What's the impact that it's having? Um, and that will allow for like an ongoing process of learning and accountability um, and adjustment when it's necessary. Um, so we think, you know, a few things, those, those two pillars kind of provide the best chance for success. You know, I could dig in a little more into what those mean exactly. Um, but I also think it's, it's helpful to think about like why those things are necessary. Um, you know, the, the tobacco settlement in, in the late nineties is a, is, is a good or unfortunate, really historical example. Um, you know, states sued tobacco companies for the, the public health impact of tobacco use and the settlement negotiations at the time, if you look at them and, and the text of the settlement seemed to assume that the money would be used for uh, tobacco cessation and prevention programs, but there really were no strong requirements that that needed to happen. And so what really happened is states received um, billions of dollars and, and continue to receive billions of dollars annually, um, but only a very small percentage of that has ever been used for, for those programs that were sort of initially envisioned. So this is really a lesson on, on what can go wrong um, and how it can go wrong um, if states don't sort of commit upfront to an action plan and, and kind of have that ongoing accountability process. But as you noted, it's it's difficult. State budgets are, are a little difficult to handle in this regard. It, you know, it's difficult to prevent money from being reallocated in the future. Legislatures can't tie the hands, you know, the current legislature can't like tie the hands of a future legislature. So you can you can pass legislation and put money in a dedicated fund, but that can always be undone later with new legislation and new budget appropriations. So that's why we ha we think that having this like transparent process with that kind of puts everybody on the record upfront about how they're gonna use the money and, and how they're gonna have, uh, and you know, what the plan is ahead of time. That's what is gonna go a long way towards helping uh, ensure that uh, the money is actually used um, for evidence-based programs to, to, to uh, treat opioid use disorder. And of course, there's a you know a piece here that that's simply just about people exerting you know popular power, right? And, and and watching this and knowing that this is going on, and I would assume that that's a big part of it. Which is, yes, money could be reappropriated later, or you could you could get this kind of budgetary shifting or balancing the budget on something like an opioid settlement. But you know, I I, I think the hope in Ohio is that this issue has become so high profile that people are watching it so carefully. Um, that that's simply not going to be politically feasible. I mean, it's been a piece that the governor and the attorney general here have made centerpieces of their work. They don't always agree on all of the the logistics of it, but it's something that's in the media every day. And it, I guess the question is whether there's staying power in the long run to be able to watch where these these funds are going. Dan, I think you raise a really great point, right? That we're at a time right now where the opioid crisis is front and center and people are paying attention. Um, we see the CDC data, we see the numbers increasing. Ohio has seen their numbers of deaths increase during COVID. So we're really at this opportune time where people are paying attention. And to build on what Mark said, the planning process is important. It's very important. and. It's very important as to who is brought to the table to facilitate and to actually inform that planning process. So we should talk, you know, states should be speaking to 
experts. They need to have uh, people with lived experience at the table. All these groups, uh, medical experts, health professionals, local um, folks who know what's happening on the ground in their communities to be informing these plans. And then in terms of transparency, how are these plans being made public and who is tracking and watching these plans. And because we're at this opportune moment where this is so front and center, this is the time to actually build that infrastructure. So it does have sustainability. You were talking about payouts that are going to last over a term of 18 years. Lots of our legislators won't be in office, but if we start now, because we have this, this, uber focus on you know the crisis that we can build in these these planning and transparency processes that will then serve us in the long term and you know of adding into that planning process evaluation needs change over time. How are we making mid-course corrections to make sure we're still addressing the opioid crisis? We're still meeting the needs of different populations. In making sure that the evaluation process is built into the distribution of these funds so that we don't create inequities or exacerbate inequities that are created in the current systems that address the opioid crisis. As you mentioned, this issue is on our minds now, although it's kind of interesting that you say that because one of the concerns with the COVID crisis was that it kind of knocked our focus on the opioid and addiction crisis off the the map for a little bit. And, and I, I, now I'm seeing us getting back and doing that in a big way. So there's this kind of temporality to political life where people are really interested in something and then kind of lose interest. And we really need people to sustain that with this issue. So Dan, I actually I would like to to add something to to what Beth just said too, because you know she noted that the money is going to be spread out over potentially a couple decades um, from some of these settlements, and obviously spread out over fifty states, right? So I I, I mentioned thirty billion dollars earlier, and I said that might go up, but when you really think about well, what is that divided by the fifty states and over the twenty years? Um, you start to realize that this is not an amount of money that's going to solve the opioid crisis on its own, right? It, states really need to continue to uh, commit their own resources to solving this problem. And that's why that's another reason why like having a good plan in place can can help you, you know, coordinate across levels of government, as Beth kind of talked about, but also coordinate the different funding sources. You know, you've got federal funding, you've got you'll have settlements, you'll have what the state is kind of already spending have what you know local governments are doing and having a, a long-term strategy really ensures that you can use this money well and strategically to boost what what is already going on in the state but also will help policymakers realize sort of the scale of the problem and also have realistic expectations about what can be accomplished and, and where with, with this money it's a really good point i mean when we talk about 30 billion dollars it sounds really huge, but as we've learned, um, you, you can burn through thirty million a billion dollars pretty fast if you make some bad decisions about it. And and I, I know that there's a lot of conversation here in Ohio about the best way to do this, but I also see disagreement. You know, and and it's not just the policy question that's there; it's also the political question. You get this, you know, state control versus local control, like so many things that we've seen w around uh, other policy questions um, with, with vaccine distribution, for example, we had to face the issue of equity. How do we make sure that those folks 
um, across you know all sorts of socio demographics, uh, people who have been historically left out of these conversations. How do we get them to the table? How do we make sure that LGBTQ folks are there? How do we make sure that rural folks are at these tables and it's not just uh, a kind of like urban policymaker discussion? So I, I don't have a good sense of how they're doing this, but I know that there is pressure in new ways to to do it. There has been pressure and you know, groups and folks are really speaking up, which is something that hasn't happened in the past. Opioid use disorder, substance use disorder in general has been long stigmatized. We know that the stigma uh, for people who use drugs, even for people who treat people who use drugs, mm -hmm. um, has long been prevalent in our society. But as we're seeing that opioid crisis is touching so many people in so many different spaces, we know that people are now starting to speak up again in a way they or speak up as they've never had before. And so this is something that is helping to bring to light that you know there are populations that are not receiving the attention that they need. And you raised, you know, two good people of color, um, the LBGTQ community, and then also people with a criminal justice history, pregnant and parenting people. You know, these are a, these are all different groups of folks that have sort of been really ostracized and stigmatized in ways that. Um, folks who are, uh, you know, white people who played basketball and hurt themselves and were prescribed, you know, Percocet um, are now are starting to become not as stigmatized as these other groups have in the past. So it's really important that we're seeing these groups actually voice and come to the table. And people who are making decisions around how to use these dollars need to be tapping into these communities because they've been underserved in the past, because there's been inequities in how they've been treated. They need to be brought to the table. Um, and we would urge all folks that are coordinating these settlements to bring these diverse groups of folks to the table to work on the planning because they know how to reach the people in their communities. So at the same time, though, it's interesting. There, there was a piece in the Columbus Dispatch today from uh, a state rep from the Canal Winchester area just south of Columbus, Richard Brown. And he called for the establishment of an office of drug policy within the governor's office. And he argues that this, this would serve as a, a centralized clearinghouse of information, resources, and best practices in order to aid local governments in promoting effective treatment. Um, he even said that it would cut through red tape, right? Which is a kind of political um, concern that we hear from, from some folks. I found it interesting coming from a Republican, actually, since they, you don't generally hear Republicans calling for centralizing processes like this. And you know, without making it a political statement, I guess I want to get your take on entities of this sort. I mean, consulting with local communities is one thing, but then the ultimate control of these funds is another. And I find it interesting. You're talking about the planning process and being really inclusive, but ultimately there's going to be this question of who gets to spend this money and decide how it gets used, right? And I, I wonder if you can sort of unpack for me how we should be thinking about that ultimately. I mean, ultimately, does Pew and, and, and the work you do suggest that local communities really need to be able to say, we're funding this um, Suboxone Center or we're going to do harm reduction in, in, in this or that way um, as when, when a, another county might do it in a, an entirely different way? So a coordinating entity, and many states have different types of coordinating entities, whether they have sort of a seat in a governor's office or they're an established task force established through an executive order or legislation. Um, there are a number of different iterations of this across the country. And 
the opportunity for a coordinating entity is to, when done well, is to ensure that the assessments have been made, that there's coordination among the jurisdictions that are using the money, that they can be you know, managed in an approach that makes sense in a state. Uh, Colorado, for example, is doing a very regional approach. They've brought together a number of entities, so they have voices um, from all different places across the state and all different populations of people impacted. And then decision makers and policymakers to work on what looks best for Colorado. And that looks a little bit different than uh, maybe an office in a governor's office, but they can all serve the same functions, which is to what are the needs of the community? Are those needs not being met? How can we use these dollars in the best way? Um, recognizing that there's other federal dollars, there's state dollars that we can also use. But having a coordinating entity uh, that's comprehensive and really brings in all these voices will be um, something that will benefit the state. And I would, you know, I would just also add to that. You know, Ohio currently has what's called a a statewide allocation agreement, which is a separate thing from that proposal you were just talking about. Right. And that that's sort of a, a jargony term, statewide allocation agreement that comes from sort of the settlement settlement language. But basically that's an agreement on how to allocate settlement funds between the state and local governments and then the types of programs that can it be used it can be used for. So this was developed uh, by the by the governor and by the uh, attorney general, but it's a it's a voluntary um, agreement that local governments can agree to. Um, and I, at this point, I believe most local governments in Ohio have have basically signaled that that they're um, on board with this agreement. And what that says is it does it does say, you know, wh- like I said, what's the allocation? So the the, the attorney general's office gets fifteen percent, but then thirty percent goes directly to local governments, mm-hmm. and then. A, a pretty big chunk, 55%, goes to something called the One Ohio Foundation, which is basically designed to, to to then allocate that money to regions, so like collections of local governments in the state, and also help those regions with planning and and sort of makes recommendations to the regions on how to use it. So I think there's a lot to be to be determined in this plan, and and I you know the disclaimer that I have to say is like you know I'm not an expert in this plan, and they're they're all complicated, and every state is kind of different, but you know, from our perspective, from Q's perspective, it, it looks like a good start um, that they have this sort of planning process in place. And it looks like local governments have found this to be a compelling model. Again, it's all sort of the devil's always in the details and in the follow through. And, and it really would require sort of an ongoing commitment to this kind of plan. But it is a, it is a good start. I guess my last question, you know, just since... Um folks may not know much about Pew and may not know much about the work you all do. And I kind of started by telling you all how appreciative I am of that work as an academic and as a, as a medical educator. But can you talk a little bit about what the role of organizations like Pew or Pew itself are in policy issues like this? Like, wh- what do you actually do? Uh, how, how does your work inform the process? And um, how, how do you hope to like influence or shape people's thinking about these complicated policy issues? I can start from a public health perspective um, with the work that we do um, in the Substance Use Prevention and Treatment Initiative at Pew, where we really do identify these evidence-based policies 
that will help states move forward on the opioid crisis. And there was a lot of education and informing, convening, and then providing states with technical assistance so that they can implement these policies that will help the different populations impacted by the opioid crisis. So the making available to states and to the public, what is the evidence behind the different programs, evidence-based medication, um, medications for opioid use disorder? What is it? How does it work? Why is it important? And how does it work to help uh, ameliorate the crisis and reduce deaths? And that's so critical because folks across all states really need to have the research that we are able to do and then produce for them and for them to use in their own domains so that they can, as you say, use the charts, but it's used to educate more folks around them so that from this public health perspective, uh, they can grab these um, solid public health pieces to actually address the opioid crisis. Yeah, we've had on the show the, the good people at the Health Policy Institute of Ohio. I don't know if you know about them being uh, with the national group, but these nonpartisan groups that just follow the data, identify gaps. Um, you know, I talk to legislators uh, on both sides of the aisle and working in you know various offices around the state and even on the federal level. I mean, th this kind of work is really important to just kind of keep your head down and no, no matter what kind of shenanigans is going on around us to just stay focused on the actual mission. Uh, Mark, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, I would just say, you know, uh, from from my side of Pew on the state fiscal health side, you know, our our view is really, our, our lens on all this stuff is really about budget, uh, budget planning and, and how states, you know, so we do a lot of work on you know, how states can plan for recessions and save enough money for, um, for recessions and how they can budget sustainably over the long term. So that's kind of the lens that we have taken uh, on the opioid settlements. And so when we look at that and, and we draw from our, our, our research in other areas and I kind of apply it to, to opioids or the opioid settlements, you know, that's where we come up with these ideas of like, well, you really need to have a, a like a, a plan in place. And it seems obvious to say that, but um, you know, what, what is actually like, what does that actually mean? You know, it means like, understand what you're currently spending on the problem, you know, assess where your need, you know, you know, you, where your needs are and what the gaps are, like actually have achievable goals, like set goals that are quantifiable, collect data to actually track what you're doing. And then, you know, I, and Beth has already said, like assess, are you making progress on that? Um, and then, you know, feed all of that into like a long-term budget process that looks out, you know, many years and can help you make sustainable sort of holistic budget choices. You know, one of the things I, I've mentioned already, like we want to make sure the money is adding to what states are currently doing. And and that can be a challenge and that there's, you know, there's ways you can kind of write that into legislation, but there's also, it's also a political or, or a process of, of transparency and accountability that will help ensure that. Um, but one other thing that states need to be, you know, concerned about, as I said, you know, you need to make sustainable budget decisions and, one thing that we help states in, in a range of areas to, to ensure that they're not doing is setting up these like budget cliffs where sometimes they get these one-time funding inflows and they say, well, we should set up this, this brand new program. Um, but if, if that fund is that the temporary funding flow, what's going to happen at the end, you're, you're going to, you're going to have set up a big program and, and not have a funding source to continue it. So um, obviously we're advocating for states to, to increase their, their, support for opioid use disorder treatment. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, you also need to do that carefully to make sure you're not going to put yourself into a situation where you have a cliff at, at the end when the settlement money runs out. Because as we've noted, the settlement money is only going to be a portion of what states really need to spend on this on these challenges. Dan, if I could just highlight something that you said, which I think is really important for, for Pew and for other organizations like us and organizations in Ohio, is the bipartisan nature, the nonpartisan nature of the work that we do in examining the evidence and bringing the evidence to the citizens is, is critical and important and is really what can help pave the way. We only seek to provide what is in the evidence um, in a nonpartisan fashion, and that should drive the day. I appreciate that. And uh, someday I'll maybe get Mark to come back and talk about the Rainy Day Fund here in Ohio and all the, the controversies and conversations we've had around that. And I mean, it's been a really wild ride through the COVID pandemic in, in terms of just trying to figure out what where, where we should be putting resources, where we shouldn't, but also, you know, this idea that, well, is this a crisis? Are we waiting for something else to happen? You know, and of course, politics is a part of it, but you're, you have all these people. And I said this on the last episode we put out, actually, just it drives me crazy because our focus is so much on the kind of I don't know, the, the margins, the the, the the sort of debatable things people say. But the truth is, is that within the halls of government here in Ohio, at every level, there are people who are really trying hard to just solve problems and they don't get any of the spotlight. So I, I think that's why the, the work that Pew does and organizations like Pew is important because it, it just kind of cuts through that. So um, Beth Connolly and Mark Robin, I want to thank you for being on Prognosis Ohio and thanks for all that you do. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a great conversation. Many thanks to Beth and Mark for joining me on the show. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by friend of the show, Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's evolving social media presence, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, next time with a conversation with Nita Sweeney, author, runner, and mental health advocate. Make sure you're subscribed to Prognosis Ohio so you don't miss that episode in your feed. Okay, thanks for listening and be well.